St. Augustine in his work, The Confessions, if you've read it or been forced to in a philosophy class or a theology class, or maybe you just read it because you like classics of Christian literature, I hope that was the case. In any case, you know his story, this man of enormous intellect but of unwieldy sexual desire who gave himself to the pursuit of all manner of creative sexual exploration, and it became one of the main things that kept him from God as he explores. As he looks back on his life, he thinks there are times when surely I was pursuing God. He thought he was pursuing what was true and what was good. But then he comes to this realization and says, what am I in the end to myself except a guide to my own self-destruction. That's a very Christian statement. It might sound pessimistic, but ultimately it's alarmingly optimistic. He says, what am I to myself but a guide to my own self-destruction? What he meant was, is so long as I am led along by my own nose, so long as I am driven merely by my own passions, by the, my own hormones, by the juices and chemical reactions going on inside of me, so long as it's only my discretion and discernment that's calling all the shots of my life, in the end, I will prove myself to be a horrible tour guide of my life, leading myself not out into the, the vistas of a lovely white sanded beach with clear blue-green waters, I'll always be leading myself ultimately into the back alleys, to the places where nothing good happens. I'm a bad tour guide for my life. He recognized I have to be invaded from a force from the outside. If I want to know something, if I want to understand something about the world and about myself, it has to come from the outside. That's what he came to understand God's revelation, his self-disclosure, God's introduction of himself to Augustine through the scriptures, through the miseries of his life. But in recognizing this and recognizing I'm not a good tour guide to myself, there's someone who is guiding me. There's someone who is concerned to me. There's someone whose overtures and affections are eager to make sure I can't get away Which is why C.S. Lewis, when he talks about his own conversion, can say to speak about man's search for God is a lot like speaking of the mouse's search for the cat. Four or six of you just heard what I said. You see, mices, mices don't search for cats. You've seen Tom and Jerry. Well, that's okay. That's a bad example. Because in that case, the mouse is not afraid of the cat. But ordinarily, mice try to stay away from cats. You get the idea. But Lewis says, the way I came into the faith was there was a presence that was pressing down on me. That I couldn't escape. I couldn't get away. And he says, you must imagine me there in my room at Magdalene College, the most reluctant convert in the history of Christianity or in the history of England. A reluctant convert but one nonetheless that God would take in even kicking or screaming. It actually caused a rise of adoration for Lewis to consider that God would take him even like that. Like a father who won't stop 
loving or a mother who will not stop adoring, a child who is stiff with rage, who is kicking in defiance, and yet the love overpowers and grabs and pulls on anyway. See, these great figures in Christendom and the Apostle Paul who is now writing to this church in Thessalonica, after he's just commended them for the ways that he's seen God's overtures come true in their life, because they have responded. He's seen work produced by faith and labor prompted by love and endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the face of great suffering and struggle, these Thessalonians, when they heard this message, which the apostle gave, not as advice, as we've talked about, not advice, but as news. There's a big difference. He spoke into a world where the Thessalonians, just like you and me, have been breathing a kind of air, like secondhand smoke, that was doing a kind of number on their insides that they didn't even know. They said, they're all number of gods. They're all manners of ways that are equally applicable. Walk in any of them. There was a smorgasbord of religious choice of gods to choose, of spiritualities to explore. And in that setting, the apostle comes in and says this disastrously exclusive but astonishingly inclusive message. God, by the way, there's only one, has come into this world that was, that was formerly all His and teemed with the brilliance and the wonder of who He was but then was shattered to bits in a cataclysm of of rebellion that has worked its way through every family tree to make family reunions and workplaces, places we hope will be places of delight, but instead places of aggravation and sorrow and cursing and places to want to get away from. The God who cares about this planet and these people has stepped into the world and He has suffered as a king on behalf of these people. He's been resurrected from the dead. And here is the reality, even if you can't see it, there's one king of the world and His name is this Lord Jesus who's been raised from the dead. And He'll raise anybody who believes in Him from the dead. And even starting now, you can enter into eternal life. You can have a power source Inside of you, the Spirit will take up residence in the dilapidated neighborhood of your life and do a gentrification project. He'll make you new. He'll make things flower and bloom where everything was formerly decaying and dying. He'll make you have new eyes to see so that you can pray like Kim prayed earlier. It's fun to give, to have an opportunity to think about other people and not just ourselves. This new life can take hold of you, he told the Thessalonians. This reality that is meant to be overlaid over all your thought life now that Jesus is the King and He's making all things new and you are the people that He has enlisted and conscripted to be His co-laborers. A hermeneutic of the Gospel, as Leslie Newbigin called it. The way that men and women can come to see what it's like when God takes up residence in a community, when God goes to work at the hospital, when God goes to work at the school or on the playing field or at the bank. The Apostle shared this message. Anybody can come. But you've got to lay down your arms. You've got to embrace this Jesus. You've got to reach His hand, reaching out to you to get your pardon and to be changed. And the Thessalonians listened. 
They responded. And God said, that's the sign. We know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our Gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power and with deep conviction. (laughs) And what an amazing comfort we said that is. When you think about your own life and what a horrible, ridiculous, flimsy faith Christian you find yourself to be and you sometimes wonder, have I even actually ever met Jesus? Maybe I'm just a fake and a phony and a... Seven-tenths chicken, phony, and slob as the character that Frederick Buechner envisions when we look in the mirror. And to say, you know, the fact that I even care about what God thinks of me, the fact that I even want to please Him means means He's acted on me first. means that I've been pre-loved. That I'm the prior recipient of His affection, which is what initiates my interest. This news the Apostle gives is meant to change. Change communities and people. And that's what we've been talking about, a consequential faith. Because the way that you grab hold of this new reality, this overlay of everything that you can see, is through this capacity that he calls, and the Bible writers call, faith. It's the pair of glasses you put on, and suddenly you can see things rightly. You can see what people are for. You can see what you should be striving for and what you should be after. And it may not always move in concert with what everyone else is thinking. He cares about the maintenance of the Thessalonian faith because they've encountered much struggle and he's been kicked out. And so he, he's writing to ask them, to, or he's writing to commend them and to try to build up and put a boost, a, a steroid shot into their faith so that they can be energized to keep at it even when they're getting beaten, even when they're losing. And as you look at what he says here in this second chapter, I'm going to let you have a little inspiration from a cinematic wonder that Kathy and I recently decided was time, like family jewels that we take out and impart to our sons It is time for them to see one of the finest movies that has ever been crafted or engineered or even envisioned by a human mind called The Princess Bride. (laughs) And we showed our boys... Hey, we got a clap. All right. We showed our boys this. And there's a scene, you know, early on where... I can't even remember his name. Andre the Giant with Inigo Montoya. Fessick. Thank you, Fessick. If you haven't seen it, he's about my size. I'm just a little bigger. No, he's even bigger than me if you can envision that, if your mental capacities will help you. And they're on a boat, and he has this capacity for being a strong man who hurts people, and but he's kind, for rhyming. And the ringleader hates these rhymes. And as they're driving ahead, Anigo says, are there rocks ahead? And he says, if there are, we'll all be dead. And the ringleader says, no more rhymes, and I mean it. Anybody want a peanut? (laughs) Who can rhyme mean it with peanut? Well, Andre the Giant can. I've got a few rhymes for you today. It just worked out that way. That was even accidental. But see, the apostle envisions that when you are people who have inhabited, have this message of this, this gospel that he calls the gospel of God, 
The gospel that he's willing to preach in the face of strong opposition. In fact, he says that if you won't let people preach it, you're hostile to others. To shut it down is to demonstrate hostility. So it's so important to him because he thinks that this is not just a piece of advice that will make your life better. He thinks this is something that if you listen to it, if you drink it in, it will be a a nutritional resource for your inner life that will help you in your outer life. And it is a description of how things actually are. Dallas Willard says the gospel is a is benevolent news about the way things really are. And that's what the apostles here are saying. That's why he's he's saying, like a good counselor, frame your life according to reality. He has to share this. Woe to him if he does not share this. And he realizes when you do this, it makes for an odd kind of person. An intriguing kind of person. The kind of person who grabs hold of this by faith, like he is demonstrating to the Thessalonians as he recounts his ministry among them when he visited them the first time. It makes you someone who is daring and sharing in the face of much glaring. Okay, it's silly, but you'll remember. It makes you someone daring and sharing in the face of much glaring. Listen to what he says. You know, brothers, when we came to you earlier, we actually had a great deal of success. It wasn't a failure. Previously, when we were in Philippi, We had suffered. We'd been insulted. He's a Roman citizen. He was treated as if he were not. He had been beaten and flogged and put in prison. And there was that cool story, earthquake, Philippian jailer about to run himself through as Paul and Silas are doing what you would have done if you had just been beaten in jail. They were singing hymns to God and praying. But they didn't run out when all the doors opened up and the shackles went free and the Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved? And they said, you can do what we did. Just... Believe, trust this Jesus. He's, he's the rescuer of the whole world. And so that night, the Philippian jailer and all his family were saved. And then Paul moves into Thessalonians, to Thessalonica. And there, he goes to the synagogue to preach. And there's a group of Jews there in the synagogue who are rabble-rousers. He's not, you know, Paul loves his own countrymen, the Jews. He is not anti-Semitic. He's anti-anti-gospelers. People who are opposed to Jesus because they're opposed to their own best hope. They're opposed to their own rescue. They're struggling against their own deliverance. And these raised up a mob and they tried to find the apostle and they couldn't find him at the house of Jason. So they got Jason and they, they, they imprisoned him, this, this guy in Thessalonica. The apostle says, in the face of great opposition, we dared to tell you God's gospel with the help of God. We dared to tell you his gospel with the help of God. See, the apostle became a man who was very daring. It's one of the the features of the early church. All these people were formerly cowering, shivering, shaking, afraid. I don't know that man, said Peter. These people, when they met up with the resurrected Christ, they suddenly realized this is true. Oh my gosh, it's true. It has to alter everything about me. And they got the inner resources of power from him. And they started to be able to do things that were bold, that were daring. Where they might get in trouble or someone might ridicule them. And so if you think about this, when you are someone who believes in Jesus and walks with Him, it will make you daring. It ought to make you daring. But part of the whole idea of daring is that that means you're going to have things that you're afraid of. Because being daring is about being courageous. And gentlemen, as a, in the, end, what's it, the edge of the world... A general, uh, staff sergeant says, gentlemen, if you are afraid, 
That is completely acceptable for there is no courage without fear. I told my nine-year-olds that as we went into battle on the baseball field yesterday. Well, not exactly like that. I screamed louder. But see, the whole idea of daring, the whole idea of being courageous is that you have to do it in the face of something that's hard. And so in this case, it means that sharing a message that's very offensive to some people. He says that the Jews here, they drove us out. It was offensive. Jesus' message that He was the Son of God and that He was establishing a kingdom on earth not like one they had envisioned was very offensive and so they killed Him. Every time you're called upon to dare as a Christian to entrust the living words of life to someone else, if you get to a point where you can do that and you're not scared, I would love to talk to you about how you did it. Because most of the things that you're called upon to exercise your faith in will feel a little bit frightening, a little bit unsettling. That's the point where courage comes in. In a way, you could think of faith and courage as overlapping, as synonymous. Most of the times you're called to exercise faith, it's going to be in the face of something that makes it seem like that would be rather silly. If you give away money by faith, that seems silly if you think about it. Because you know why? You won't have money. And if you give up your time to somebody and you make a commitment to watch the children's videos, for instance. I don't know. Did you hear what Corby said earlier? He was trying. We were trying to shame you into this. It's not working yet, but it will. We'll go to physical aggression next. I've been lifting. I've lost my train of thought. I wonder why. When you are called to exercise your faith, when you make a commitment, you're, you're deciding out in the future whether it's a commitment to do something or it's a commitment to stay married to someone. You are deciding, you're making plans against your present self for your future self. You're saying that in the future, I'm going to regard someone else's time and someone else's need as more important than my own. And so I need to keep that. That That's a dare. That's why we're scared to commit. That's why we're scared to jump in. If If you're a teenage kid, one of the worst features of adolescence, and, you know, happily it all goes away when you get grown up, is that you have these moments where you are developing as a person and you despise the idea that somehow or another you're going to stand out in some kind of weird way and everyone's going to look at you and go, <laughs> you're too short or you're too tall or you're too pimply or you're too skinny or all manner of things like that. You don't want to be the weird one. And if you are the weird one, you want to be purposefully weird so that you stand out in a good weird way. But nobody wants to be singled out. Well, you know what's going to happen? Young people and old people. I was being cynical, uh, 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 facetious when I said it goes away. There's so many instances in your life where if you want to obey Jesus, you're going to look like a freak. There. It's true. You know, Peter says, live your lives here as aliens and strangers in reverent fear. 
If there are times when the decisions you're making as a family or the decisions you're making as a business or decisions you're making as a, as a student or a player or a coach or a nurse, if there aren't times when the things that you're practicing and believing and doing don't make you think, gosh, they're going to think I am so weird, then you're doing it wrong. You're supposed to seem like a freak sometimes. Not like a freak freak. Don't be weird on purpose. Don't bring disfavor to Jesus but hitting people in the head with Bibles and stuff. But if you follow Him when everybody else around you isn't, sometimes it's going to seem strange. And we don't like that. That's why C.S. Lewis said courage is not simply one of the virtues, it is the form of every virtue at its testing point. Which means that it's highest reality. See, whether it has to do with sexual promiscuity and trying to honor the norms of God's sexual fidelity within marriage, or whether it's telling the truth when you know that it's going to prove injurious to tell it, maybe even injurious to you, In any of these instances, it requires at that moment the faith, the courage to exercise the virtue at the testing point. Fortunately, we have all kinds of opportunities for this. And that's why it's helpful to remember if you're going to become a daring person, it's only going to be with the help of God. I'm not sure Jesus means for all of us to become sort of spiritual bungee jumpers. X Games... Jesus followers, some of you that will be the case. But every single day there are instances where you can say, do I trust that Jesus is the king, that he will resource me, and therefore I can go through this, whatever I'm afraid of. My favorite adage, I repeat it all the time, is what Joe told me one time, whenever, Joe Nevinson, whenever we walk through the door marked fear, we meet Jesus on the other side. I wish there was a better way. But it seems like this faith, which is synonymous with courage, The call to be daring is always involving us doing something that feels really wobbly, really shaky, really scary. We don't know what's going to happen. We have to trust that the God who's with us now is going to be the God with us in the future. That's that's the kind of thing you do. If you want to stay married, you want to honor your marriage vows, you have to dare over and over and over again. Can Jesus resource me to keep loving this person who doesn't love me back? You want to be reconciled with somebody that you're cattywampus with right now? And you've got to make the first call because they're not going to? What are you going to say? I don't know. What do you say to your teenager when this happens? I don't know. What do you say? What do you do? I don't know. You've got to do something. With the help of your God, you've got to dare to act as if Jesus were there. It's the way faith works. And often that's how you'll find the Holy Spirit at work in your life. I've told you this before, and I think it's so true. It's unbelievable to me how much this is the case. I used to think that when I was empowered fully with the Holy Spirit, that meant I could just walk through a wall. I wouldn't even need a door. I'd be so strong, so so vigorous. I'd just I'd just just walk, I'd just be like the Incredible Hulk. That's the kind of power I envisioned until I started realizing, no, no, this is a faith of God that works in our weakness. So sometimes the demonstration of the Spirit's power comes off of you while you feel weak and trembly and unsure and like a doofus. And I can attest to that every single day that I'm awake. Daring. You become a person who dares. The other two points are much shorter. 
It also makes you a kind of person who shares. When you start to really believe this, to believe what you believe, to possess your possessions, it makes you someone who shares. He says, as apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you like a mother with her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, we didn't only preach to you, but we embodied the message. We became a sermon in shoes and we shared our very lives with you because you had become so dear to us. I was at the Mountain Opry many years ago, back at Signal Mountain, and I'd come to know a man who played fiddle. He's probably in his 70s, goes by the name of Cecil. And Cecil and I were standing near the concession stand, and Cecil had himself a six-pound hot dog. The buns were kind of like one of them L.L. Bean tote bags. And he had himself relish, mustard, and pickles, and chili, and slaw, and whatever other disgusting things you would put on a hot dog that size. And he was talking to me, and he knew, he sensed he had self-awareness. He didn't know he had self-awareness, but he had it. He sensed that something was not going right about this. And so he said to me, you know what the best way to eat one of these here is? And I said, no, Cecil, I sure don't. He said, by yourself. (laughs) That way, nobody can see you getting it all over your face. I said, I think that's probably right. There are a lot of things that are best done by yourself. There are a lot of things best kept to yourself. There are a lot of disciplines that we practice by ourselves to embolden our faith. But this faith of ours, if it's true, it's not just for you. If this gospel story is true about Jesus reclaiming the earth and reclaiming us, and he is the one who's going to make all things new, so that in the end all things shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. If it's all true, then it's not just for you. It's not something that can be done just by yourself. And so the Paul, the Apostle Paul is always demonstrating with his own life, look, I'm trying to help you see that this is not just something you say, it's something that you live into. So we were like mamas with you. He uses all this familial language partly because the Thessalonians, to believe in Jesus, like in many cultures now in the Middle East, for instance, if you believe in Jesus, you don't have a family anymore. You're a traitor. You're an infidel. And so Paul is constantly adopting this family language to say, you know what? If you got nobody, you got your church family. That's your, those are your brothers and sisters. Those are your mothers and your fathers. You've got God as your father. You have a people. You're not severely displaced. You have a people. You are wanted. You are adored. You are prized. You are accepted on the earth. And he says, we were like mothers. See, mothers, well, mothers, they get, the, they get the joy of never being able to be okay if their kids aren't. That's how they are. And they're always thinking about how can they, how can they help? My wife the other day, Andrew, was forlorn about something or another. And this is just kind of the general posture of her life. Do you need me to do anything for you, honey? I walk into Lula Lake at their fellowship meal the other night, and I walk in there, and Jane Henniger and Ann Smith, consummate mothers. You look in the library, the dictionary, and that's, they've got pictures of them. And they just start handing me food as if I haven't already eaten all the food on the earth. 
But they can't help themselves. They're like, here, you need this, you need that. Because they just want to effusively give and tend to and fuss over. It's a great picture of people who believe that this is how God has tended to us. Can a mother forget her child who's nursing? No, not normally. But even if she does, I will not forget you, says God. And He has created this community on the earth that demonstrates to people there is a place you can come where people have been dealt with God in such a way that now they they fuss over each other. They can't be okay if their brothers and sisters in the church are not okay. They can't be okay if the people at work are not okay. They can't be okay if people out in the world are not okay. They fuss over them. They tend to them. They sacrifice for them. They say, how can I help you? They, they, they forget about themselves. And in the process, like a mother, have you ever, you know, you've seen moms sometimes. That happens to dads too. You get, you get, you might get sickness on you. You might wear your child's, uh, spit up. We'll say to be polite. You're changing diapers. And when they get older and you're not doing that stuff anymore, hopefully, you're, you're still wearing their sorrows. As we always say, you, when you help troubled people, you're going to get trouble on you. When you help people in distress, you're going to get distress on you. And I'm always amazed that my wife and I know, I look at all you moms out here in the same way. My mama was like this to me. I just don't ever see them caring about that. And it's because the dearness, the object of their affection is so great, they just forget themselves. See, that's a goal for you. That other people would become so dear to me that I would just, I would just find myself fussing over their well-being. That I would, I would not spare myself to enhance their lives. Jared Diamond, Guns, Germs, and Steel, I think that's the name of the book he wrote, a sociologist who said, why do, he studied, why do major civilizations collapse? I heard this on a TED talk recently. And he said one of the factors that always happens in societies where they collapse, when they get to the pinnacle of their success, these great civilizations, here's why they collapse. The elite, the leaders, they start to sacrifice the long-term well-being for their short-term gain. Which is the exact opposite of Christianity. Which says in Christianity you would disadvantage yourself for the advantage of others in the world, the elite will say, advantage myself. I, don't, I won't feel the pain of anybody else for now. Who cares what happens later? But the apostle says people who have been drenched in the good news about how things actually are are going to be concerned about sharing their lives with each other. That's why we want you to be in community groups with each other. We want you to become dear to each other. Because as soon as somebody becomes dear to you, we share our lives with you because you were dear to us, he says. As soon as someone becomes dear to you, you don't have to tell them anymore what to do. You just let affection take over. You just move and help. You just think of how can I improve your life? You start to aspire for one another. Daring and sharing. But you always have to do this with some amount of glaring. There are going to be people who aren't going to understand. We live in a cultural moment where if you... Believe in Jesus, if you espouse any of his teachings, if you talk to anybody about this, some people are going to think that you're closed minded. They're going to think that you're the problem. It's become in vogue now in the atheist 
propaganda literature that the main problem with Western civilization is Christianity. Not only are we not a help, we're the hurt. So we're walking around people who think that. They don't all think that right here in the South, but it's coming. That's where your courage comes in. You're doing this with the help of God. I close with this. The other day, after baseball practice, when I was I just coached our 9 and 10 year old all-star team here, the boys were telling Kathy, Mom, Dad was steaming tonight at practice. And she said, as she would, Oh no! <laughs> was he really mad at them? I don't know why she'd say that. And they said, no, he was actually steaming. Steam was coming off of him. And I was so glad they cleared that up because I was standing there in a huddle and I was talking to him and several of the boys were going. And I, you know, I thought, okay, they're making fun of me. They're, what are they saying? And so I did that thing that all adults have done in the, since the history of adult children relationships. I said, is there something you'd like to share with the whole class? Or something to that effect. And they said, there's steam coming off of you. They were mesmerized. This phenomenological wonder that was happening before their eyes. The heat. My oversized body had met up with the sudden change of temperature in the air and I was a a condensation unit. (laughs) Emitting steam into the air. I'm sure it had an aura about it as well. And it makes me think, and the boys couldn't take their eyes off, you see. When you start to have this kind of faith, or when you pursue this kind of faith where the Lord's message is ringing out of you, that's what Paul commends the Thessalonians for. When you become the kind of person who so believes in the present availability and resourcefulness of Jesus in your life now and the fact that He has got your life in control for all the rest of your days until we live on the new earth and new bodies where sorrows have been banished and sighing has fled. When you believe that, you become a person of great daring who doesn't stop in the face of fear, who doesn't give up when things are hard, who keeps on daring greatly, as Brene Brown would say. You also become someone who starts to share your life in a way, to give away your life, to care about the welfare of others in such a way that people look at it and go, that's a, that's a natural wonder. There's a kind of life coming off of you. It's a kind of steam. I don't know what it is. It's, it's the life of Jesus coming out of you. See, as we believe Him, His life will come sailing out of us just like that steam came off of me. And it was all coming off of me because I had been working. I had been energized. I had been giving myself. I had been engaging. It created heat. When it met up with the atmosphere, it it nearly caused an explosion. (laughs) And when you engage this world with trust in our risen Savior, You'll become a daring person who can share even if other people are glaring and the life of Jesus will come wafting off you. It will be a wonder to behold. 
We're the community that God has created for other people to say, Oh, so that's what it's going to be like when righteousness rules on the earth. When people aren't just thinking of themselves, but others. See, we've got good news, not bad. Our Lord wants to make everything new. Our Lord wants to fix everything in disrepair. And He's already started on us. And He said, join me in the work. Be a people of daring. A people of sharing. Even if you meet up with much glaring. Amen.